0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate network and LitHub Radio. Today's episode of The History of Literature podcast is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com/hol. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com/hol. Okay. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. You may have noticed that we skipped a week last week. A lot has happened in this country, my country, the United States. We had an election, a seismic event. Everything has changed. There will be a before and an after. This happens sometimes in history. There's a before and after World War I, uh, World War II, same thing, 9-11. It affects everything, including literature. Literature changes. Oh, I suppose the differences get smoothed out over time, hundreds of years later. This might look like a blip, like one big era. But that's not a guarantee the roman republic and the roman empire are two very different eras and the change happened very quickly you can see where my mind is right now and why it's a little hard to put out a podcast where i talk about literature and what it means and my take on things on books the perspective shifts daily almost hourly right now as the news and people's analysis and their opinions all come in That's the overall feeling. Things, thoughts, ideas, our understanding of who we are and what we stand for. Things like that, things are up for grabs. Remember, literature, if it's any good, reflects reality in some form. It bears witness. It keeps up with the changing times. It's honest. So, I'm going to try to be honest here, too. Not political, exactly. Not because I think politics is unimportant, but because I think you have access to better voices for that. Experts. I'm just a guy. A guy reading books. And I'm a guy from Wisconsin, originally. Rural Wisconsin. I'll get to that more today. But for those of you in this country, and maybe abroad too, I don't know, you you understand why this is of particular interest right now rural male voters in Wisconsin and Indiana and Michigan and Ohio, Rust Belt states, white rural male voters from Wisconsin are in the spotlight right now. They were crucial to this election. I have some thoughts. I'm going to tell you my views, not of white rural male voters as a category, because frankly, I don't like when people talk about me as a category. It always feels like People get things wrong somehow, and I chafe at it, oversimplifies to lump everyone together like that. Maybe it's important to do in journalism or politics or policy making. but this is literature here in this corner of the world. this podcast, wherever it resides. Literature doesn't oversimplify. literature expands. It treats individuals as complex beings because they are. Even the most stereotypical voter took a journey, a journey full of loves and losses and role models and disappointments and choices. So to act as if everyone is in some monolithic category doesn't really do justice to the reality of human beings. And we need to stick to reality now more than ever. So I'm going to talk today about a few books in my own history of reading, I'll tell you a few decision points that I reached, how I came from rural Wisconsin to where I am now, and we'll talk about someone very famous, a key player in this election, this political world, one of the most powerful men in America right now. It's actually pretty close to me. We grew up 10 miles apart, almost the same age, no people in common, and we faced Similar choices at similar points in our life. I chose one path, he chose the other. I'll talk about where that led us and what I think about it now. So, we're going to have other episodes where we talk about literature, just literature. And I know that some of you are waiting for that. Some of you have asked for that as a consolation, a retreat, an escape. I appreciate that. We'll have some of that coming up. We'll have Virginia Woolf soon. And we'll have our conversation with, not with Bob Dylan, about Bob Dylan, with Mike Palindrome. We'll also take a look at some other topics worthy of these changing times, dystopian fiction, persecuted authors, George Orwell, what does an author write about in the age of Trump? We'll try to ask some authors, try to get some people on all sides of this question. So today, Rene Descartes. Blaise Pascal, Friedrich Nietzsche, Ayn Rand, Simone de Beauvoir, and me, Jack Wilson, white rural male born in the good state of Wisconsin. Coming up. <laughs> out that my hometown is rural. It's a world of farms and factories and small town dreams. What are those dreams? Hard work, decent job, finding a husband or wife, having some kids, sticking close to friends and family, finding a community. That doesn't sound like a big dream, but it's nothing to sneeze at either. There's a great Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin and Hobbes are talking about wishes. And Hobbes says that if he could have anything at all, he'd have a sandwich. Calvin is outraged. He accuses Hobbes of having no imagination. Calvin would take a trillion billion dollars, a space shuttle and a private continent. And then in the last panel, they're inside the house eating sandwiches. And Hobbes says, I got my wish. My grandfather used to say something that struck me. He was a a big man in a small town, a high school coaching legend. He had a lot of success. And my sister and I were moving around when we were in college. And just after college, we were traveling to other countries, living in cities. And we would come back and visit him. And he would still be in his small town, the place he had spent his life. And he said, well, this town is small, but it's been good to me. And there's a truth in that. Chicago and New York and Seattle and DC and all the other cities where I've lived have been amazing places full of new people and ideas and people from all different countries and backgrounds and ways of life. But I've never been the marshal in a parade. I've never ridden in a convertible down Main Street waving at people, all my friends who are proud of me, who are smiling and waving back. My grandfather did that that was his life, it isn't mine. And to spend years among friends and family, going through ups and downs together, supporting each other, proud of each other, working hard together to open the window for love and friendship and camaraderie, that doesn't really happen where I am. There's an anonymity in the big cities, a kind of a coldness, one might say. We might be proud when a new restaurant comes to our city, and we might be Mildly disappointed when one leaves. But in a small town, a new restaurant opening would be transformative. It means something. It changes us. We are different because of this restaurant in our midst. And a restaurant closing might be devastating. We only have a couple. <laughs> Subtract one. What are we left with? Who are we now? We're the town that only has one restaurant, or the town that doesn't have a restaurant at all. Look, my sister went to college, and her first year she lived in a dorm that had over a thousand kids in it. And that building was bigger. It had more people in it than our entire hometown. Think about the closeness that would build in a town like that. Decades and generations of people, parents and kids, and grandkids and grandparents, all living in the same place, driving on the same roads as each other. You feel it. You feel connected to the place, to the land. I haven't lived there for years, and I still feel it. Now it's mostly through Facebook and the visits I make to my parents' house, but it's there. It's in my DNA. You know people. You really know them. The good, the bad, and the ugly. You're all in it together, trying to make the good a little better, the bad a little less bad, and keep the ugly to a minimum. One of the things that struck me as I traveled around the world was that my town had no real reason to be there. Looking back, <laughs> looked back at my little town, looked at the cities I was seeing. Cities tend to have rivers and ports. Most towns have, have a river or a lake or a, a spring, high ground, something, some natural feature. Ours had two highways intersecting. It's very fabric. Its history as a town was that it was a gathering place. It was convenient. Farmers could could meet there, could come in, come in from the fields and exchange goods. It was far enough away from all the other good places. A town needed to be there because the people the people needed one, needed one near them. Then years later came General Motors, put in a plant ten miles away, and the town thrived a little. More houses went up, and getting a job at GM became another one of those small-town dreams. You could live a good life on a factory job, a union factory job, get a decent salary, good benefits, a path to retirement. A single income could carry a family. You could raise kids on a single factory job, and maybe after a lot of years of hard work, work working the night shift, working overtime, maybe a The second job, maybe the spouse finds a way to to bring in some money. Maybe you could get a cabin up north for hunting. Or maybe a boat to take fishing on a nearby lake. Those jobs, I think, are largely gone now. What replaced them? Maybe some other factory jobs. GMs pretty much defunct. A few other factories are around. Or maybe... One can drive farther to get to a plant in Illinois. Or maybe you put together some smaller jobs, one-offs, temporary gigs. Not a real sense of promotion. Not a real upward trajectory to jobs like that. Your health care is uncertain. Retirement too. And the individual is under a lot of pressure. But hey, that's life, right? That's how most people I see face it. Nobody said life would be easy. So maybe we get two jobs now. Maybe we tighten our belts, give up that boat. Maybe we suck it up and deal. The whole town feels it when changes like this happen. The whole town feels more vulnerable. When I was a kid, General Motors would talk about closing the plant nearby, and everyone would be full of uncertainty. Your best friend might move away. Your street might suddenly be empty your house, and five other houses with four sale signs in front of them. The town is like a single cell organism, like an amoeba. It's responsive to all the outside pressures. Everything outside can stimulate the amoeba. So you can add farming to this too. Family farms were disappearing, and maybe there are still... Farming jobs, even as the farms get bigger and bigger, but there's nothing like a family farm for anchoring a community. It's like a permanent feature of the land itself. It's inherited, it's worked, it's local income. It's known to everyone whose farmhouse that is up there on the hill. Teenagers get their first jobs on farms like that. There's a sense of pride in a good harvest year. Those farms are feeling the pressure to merge now, to consolidate if they haven't already. The number of family-run farms has dropped, and the ones still in business are feeling it, feeling the pressure. Think of an ocean with lots of small ships spread out all over, a thousand ships on the ocean. Now think of an ocean with five ocean liners. Maybe that's more efficient, but you know what you've lost? 995 captains, 995 autonomous captains in charge of their vessel and creating a world for the people around them. And you can add in all the neighboring towns too, the way of life changing for a whole area, a whole county. And the response of the people? Do they complain? Not really. Fine, we'll deal with it. We'll take our lumps. We'll look for other ways to make a few bucks. Maybe open a daycare center. Maybe build houses. Teach school. Open an ice cream shop. Maybe go back to school. Get a trade. Welding school. Join the military to get trained in something that may or may not lead to a job. Paint houses. Or... That was me, after 18 years in the same house, in the same bedroom, reading books, dreaming, not really learning anything that would equip me for life in the small town. I couldn't change a spark plug. I mean, kids kids younger than me could rebuild an entire engine. Not me. I could add gas. I didn't know what a spark plug looked like. I could barely drive a tractor, meaning... I could make the thing go lurching along while my coworkers laughed their heads off. But who cared? After a week in the hot sun picking up rocks. <laughs> that was that was the, what we did. That was the job I had. We picked up rocks to clear a field, all day in a field with just us and the rocks, keeping them onto a trailer. It was about 5 of us not wearing shirts in the hot sun, keeping these rocks onto a trailer. And then when the trailer was full, we drove the trailer to the side of the field and we stood on the trailer and hurled the rocks away from the soil. It was hot, back-breaking work. We had cans of Mountain Dew that were practically boiling by the end of the day because our cooler couldn't even keep them cold in that hot sun. It didn't matter to us. We drank it hot. We finished one enormous field full of rocks. I said something like, well... That should be good for farming now. How many years is that going to last? And the other guys just stared at me. We do this every spring, said one of them. That's what happened. Every winter, the, the freezing and the thawing would churn up more rocks. Every spring, guys would go out, clear the field. That was enough for me. I just... I couldn't imagine the hours, the work, the effort it took to keep that land fertile and growing and producing income. Or I couldn't imagine my friend's dad's in the factories, for that matter. I'd been to factories. They're noisy, hot, loud. Work was repetitive. Hours and hours and hours. Putting stickers on cars. Just putting in the time. Putting in the work. Building a nice little home. The happy little family, the dads and the moms too, would turn up at the high school for a game or a band concert or a play and they'd be all freshly scrubbed, their eyes bright, eager to meet the teachers and above all to see their sons and daughters performing well. God, I loved, I love those people. They're decent and hardworking. They don't complain. Oh, there's a dark side too. They have flaws like everyone else. And there's a, a couple of particular flaws that I'll get to later in the show. But God damn it, if those people I grew up with who fought in World War II, who fought in Korea, who fought in Vietnam, who paid taxes, put their heads down, and tried their best to raise their families, damn it, if those weren't some of the best people I've ever known who did as much for me as any group of a thousand people have ever done for anyone. And I left. The writing was on the wall for me. I had no real skills and a yearning to see the world. I was George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart character in It's a Wonderful Life, a movie that was hugely important to me. But I saw it as kind of a tragedy. I know there's a beautiful ending. We've talked about that with Professor Chandler a couple shows ago. There's a beautiful ending, but I skipped that part. I worried about the feeling that George Bailey had of being trapped of wanting to see more and do more and build things and meet new people. Small towns have a kind of insularity, too. It's not all all sunshine and brightness in a small town. There's a feeling that everyone knows everyone's business, and that can be oppressive. And besides, I had only one path, one potential occupation, the path of teaching school like my grandfather and my father before me. And in those years, my father was a disaffected teacher, as the world that he grew up in had lost respect for the profession. I didn't want to fight with parents or the principal or break up fights, literal fights in the hallways. And more and more, that was his day. and He would come home tired, weary, and the salaries were shrinking, and the benefits, and the teachers' union was under siege. A lot of problems. They had to work without a contract. They'd go on strike. That world was changing too. So, like the kids who gave up the dream of a family farm, I gave up my family's profession, high school teaching, and I ended up at the University of Chicago through a bunch of improbable circumstances. And then I traveled to Taiwan and China, Tibet, Thailand, Italy, 25 other countries, and lived in D.C. and worked on Capitol Hill and did all kinds of things. All kinds of things that all led to this, me, here, now, and this podcast about literature. An improbable journey, to say the least. But first, before that, before any of that began, there was my high school math teacher. The man who in some ways started it all. I went through a period of struggling to fit in. There's a story about this on the blog, on the Jack Wilson blog, where I threw the eighth grade spelling bee, which, God help me, is probably the worst thing I ever did because of what it meant. And that's another story. You can go read that one. But after that came my anti-intellectual phase. I was still reading because I was an addict. But I only read things about sports, Sports Illustrated, the news section, the sports section in the newspaper, biographies of sports heroes, that kind of thing. It was as if my brain needed the stimulus of reading, but my adolescent body could not take standing out by reading actual books. I wanted to have friends. I wanted girls to like me. I didn't have it in me to be a dork reader. Probably this was all in my head. Probably nobody really cared if I was reading a lot or not. But I imagined that they did. And that's what mattered to me. And I had this math teacher who was a friend of my father's. I'll just go ahead and call him Mr. D. A huge figure in my life. He taught probability and statistics. And he would do things like teach an entire class on probability. And at the end of the class, at the end of his lecture, he'd say, We need to roll a die. Does anyone have one? And everyone would start fishing around their pockets and rummaging through their desks. And he would then spit the dye out of his mouth, a dye that he'd had in there the entire class, secretly. Man, standing in front of a classroom, talking to high school students for 45 minutes, all with this dye secretly tucked away in his cheek, just so he could produce it for effect. Everyone would gasp. Now, now I look back and think, what kind of teacher did that? It's a man who was fighting off boredom with his own idiosyncratic ways. He found it amusing to be a little off kilter, I think, to keep us on our toes. And he knew that I loved to read. And he asked me what I read and I told him, mainly sports. And he said, there's so much out there. Don't just read about sports. And then he described his summers for me when He would go to auctions and estate sales, and he'd buy a a whole box of books for $5. And he would retreat to his hammock and just read. Just read all day. And I recognized that he had a, a mind like mine, a dry sponge, looking to soak something up, constantly looking for more. And once I told him how much I liked geometry, the method of it. I liked how you could start with some first principles and then use logic to reach new conclusions. And it made me wonder if we could do that in other areas of life. And he said, you should read Descartes, Discourse on the Method. I'll never forget it. And I know people, know people I've met, probably a lot of people listening to this podcast who would take it for granted that a teacher might come up with Descartes in a situation like that. To me, it's not at all a given. For that man, that high school math teacher, to reach me at just that time, to have an answer for me, and to point me in a direction like that, just part of a conversation we were having, it strikes me now as incredible good fortune. Something like a miracle. And that's the thing. Everyone now, after this election, wants to lump rural white men in Wisconsin I want to lump them all into a category. Well, there's no category that could contain a Mr. D. He crosses all the lines. So he gives me this perfect suggestion, the the very thing I, I myself was curious about. And here he is pointing me toward an author who's done something just like that already. And I said, Descartes, he did? Did that work? And Mr. D said, nodded, and he says, He thinks he proves that there's a God. And I was hooked, hooked forever, really, that these great books, these great thinkers, a whole life, it's been a whole life fascinated with them, with the history of ideas. And I can trace it all back to that moment. The moment when Mr. D told me that someone named Rene Descartes had done exactly what I was thinking someone might do, and he had reached a conclusion that was even more interesting and exciting than I would have imagined that someone might reach. And then I asked Mr. D if it worked, if Descartes really had pulled it off, he had really proved that God exists. And Mr. D smiled and said, you should read it. That was another lesson for me. Don't look to the teacher for the answer. Wrestle with it yourself. So... He gave me lists of books and I went off to college and I got even more lists of books and I was all set on my way to becoming a passionate lover of literature and history and philosophy and everything else. Still a small town guy, which I was reminded of all the time by my new friends at college. Some of them were very angry at me for being who I was. Resentful, I guess, of my general sunny view of the world because I had not yet had that Beaten out of me by life. One guy from the East Coast used to call me Richie Cunningham, and he said it was such venom that I I was shocked. So I didn't know what to think. So what? So what? So I have some dorky clothes, and I'm not exactly familiar with riding in taxis or eating in nice restaurants. And I like talking to people, and I like staying in touch, and I like helping people out, and I like getting along because those are my roots. That's in my small-town DNA. I'm proud when people I know do well. And I smile at people I haven't seen for a while. I stick up for the little guy reflexively. So what? So what if that's just me? Not acting. But it bothered him. All of that, everything I just described, bothered him. I've gone a long time without talking about race is the real subject for today, the real, the real subject in our country. We're going to address it here on the podcast. I'll preview a little bit here. The world I knew in Wisconsin, my rural Wisconsin, my corner of the world, was not dominated by racists. There was not a lot of diversity, to be sure, and there were hardcore racists, ugly people. And my sense was that most people were embarrassed by them. Like I remember A kid, a friend of mine, I was over at his house spending the night, and his dad started talking, had a few too many beers, and the kid whispered to me, oh, my dad is really racist. He was whispering that because he knew the dad was about to tell some ugly joke. That happened. I remember that incident. I also remember that the kid was embarrassed embarrassed because of how his dad thought. He knew that his his dad was offensive from another era, outdated. It seemed to me that that was the bargain. That was the great pattern. I think we shared this with other places, other places full of white people in America, this pattern. Am I wrong about this? I met people in the South that seemed to be going through the same thing. Remember, this is the 1980s I'm talking about. This is after the television series Roots, after the Civil Rights Movement, and people were trying to move forward in the area of race. This was the era of people would say things like, my grandfather was really racist, my dad is less so, and I'm raising my kids not to be racist at all. Not how it was in my family, my grandfather and father, but that was the kind of thing that I would hear. Kids in college used to say that. Yeah. I thought that was the pattern in Wisconsin and in the South and many other places. Maybe I had a narrow view. Maybe that was anecdotal, minority view of white people. But listen to that. Listen to that. My grandfather was really racist. My dad is less racist. But you know what? I'm raising my kids not to be racist at all. Listen to that and tell me that there's anything wrong with that. Tell me you wouldn't trade whatever it is that we actually have for that one statement. I'm raising my kids not to be racist. Back to college. There I was reading everything. And along with Descartes, I read Pascal and his famous wager. And that struck me as well. And to be honest, I meant for this entire episode to be about Blaise Pascal, but in the end, with this election, I have to set it aside. We may need to cover it another time, go deeper into it, because right now I'm trying to get at something else. My apologies for those of you looking for details about the man who was born in 1623 and died in 1662 and was a mathematics prodigy so good in fact that when he published some of his ideas at age 16 Descartes himself refused to believe that anyone that young could have come up with them he thought it was a hoax that Blaise's father had written them but it was Blaise we have pascal's theorem and pascal's triangle and he essentially invented probability theory oh and maybe bus lines <laughs> Maybe the first bus might have been Pascal. I love thinkers like that who turn their mind to all kinds of different problems and come up with ideas that make sense. He struck new ground in the area of fluids and vacuums, Blaise Pascal, a great French genius. And when he died, they found a note that he'd written and he'd sewn into his clothes so that it would always be with him. The first word on the note, fire. And then it goes on to describe a religious epiphany. He never wanted to forget it. And he started his, his scrap of paper with a one-word sentence, fire. Hellfire, a burning bush, maybe both. Maybe it was just the, the power of his revelation, the overwhelmingly powerful feeling as vivid and dramatic as fire. After that religious epiphany, the vision he had, he wrote two books about Christianity. One was called Provincial Letters, the other was Pensées or Thoughts. It's a more famous one. Both were hugely influential. Voltaire and Rousseau were drawn to his prose, his method of attack, his satire, his common sense approach. He had this wonderful idea for how to persuade people to believe in God. He decided he would first describe the world in such a way that everyone would feel the need for certainty. He would put them in a world of doubt, set forth all the unanswerable questions, show how impossible it was to know the answers, all to prepare people for what they would then need to adopt in order to steer them clear, to steer them out of that wilderness. Now, He also recognized the flaws with this. He knew that someone might not be able to believe. He had answers for that too. But at the heart of all this is his wager. We generally oversimplify Pascal's wager. And I would recommend reading the entire passage where he sets forth the wager because it's not too long and it's worth reading so you understand exactly what Pascal did and did not say. But in its essence, the wager is addressed to agnostics or atheists or others who might have rejected a Christian God or have doubts. And here's what it says. Imagine that you're living in a world where God exists or he doesn't. You must believe or not believe. It's one or the other, and you have to choose. It's too important a question to say you're not going to choose. Now, if you choose to believe in God... And you're right. If God exists, you gain infinite riches. You go to heaven. If you choose to believe in God and it turns out that you're wrong because God doesn't actually exist, you lose nothing. You're in the same position, at least after you die you are. But on the other hand, if you choose not to believe and you're right, there is no God, you essentially get no reward. Your gains are finite. Maybe you have a little more time on your hands. You can do something with yourself other than go to church. And if you don't believe and you're wrong about that, you lose everything. Your losses are infinite. You spend eternity burning in hell. When you put it that way, Persuasive to a lot of people, of course. This is the bet. I can see the better side of this bet. And Go to heaven, avoid hell. This is like a, a lottery ticket plus an insurance policy. So why not believe in God? There are all kinds of problems with this logic. Voltaire was an early critic. He pointed out that this doesn't prove God's existence at all. That saying that something is to my advantage to believe in does not mean that the thing exists. Pascal himself recognized that not believing was a problem that might be harder to solve than his wager makes it seem. Just because you think it's a good idea doesn't mean you will actually believe there might be part of you that never escapes the doubt. So his solution was recognize your disbelief and then to act like you believed to follow the to follow the lead of others who did believe and to seek belief that way. It's an old idea. If you're on your knees praying and you're in church singing hymns and you're asking for God's forgiveness and you're taking communion, all those things, eventually you might find that doubt actually does pass and you actually do believe. But wait, say the critics, is that really what God wants you to do? Fake it? God's omniscient. Won't he see through this? Will God really like the trick? Won't he know that you chose God for selfish reasons? Improper reasons? And others have said, this isn't a bet at all. What kind of a bet is it when you don't have someone on the other side to accept it? It's like when my boys say to me, if I make this basket, you'll give me a million dollars. I'll bet you I'll make it. And if I do, you'll give me a million dollars. And then they shoot and they make the basket. Do I owe them a million dollars? Is it possible to have such a wager? One-sided wager? But here's the thing. Here's why I'm discussing this today. It's not a wager with God. It's a wager with yourself. That's the key. That is the key. Hold on to that thought because I'll get back to it. So after my newly discovered love for reading something other than sports, I headed off to college where I basically got my brains bashed in by people a lot smarter than me. I was humbled by how little I knew about math and science and literature and everything. My roommate was a highly educated genius. I was in way over my head and I fought my way through dog paddling through heavy current. Frantic to get to the shore somehow. And at the same time, I was introduced to political correctness. This was new then, or at least it was new to me. It was huge, dominated everything. And it caused a lot of turmoil on the campus as people tried to figure out exactly what it meant and what people were supposed to do. Teach the canon? A bunch of dead white males? Or do we open it up? Open it up how? How far? Who was in charge of deciding? What was going to be best for individual students? What was best for the campus? What was best for society? These are all great questions. All questions worth asking. And all of them are difficult to answer. I'm not sure there is an answer. Not one everyone can agree on for sure. It's a more of an ongoing dialogue. And it's a tough dialogue to have sometimes can be really hard to agree on the details, and people are invested. People's careers are invested, people's ways of thinking, their ways of life. And people might agree on the importance of broadening things, adding some new authors, some new ideas, some new cultures. But that only opens up more questions. What gets added? We had Tony Morris into the syllabus, but who else? And who gets dropped? Right now, history course at my school, Western Civ, it was required of all students. The idea was, well, should we let students choose another civilization course instead? Asian Civ? African Civ? Do we let that replace Western Civ? Or maybe we should require that everybody take more than one Civ People fought battles about this. They're hard questions. So what happens when you can't agree on the details? You try to find some values in common and work your way up from there. You find the underlying values, like I'm in favor of diversity, but I'm also in favor of some kind of standardized education that everyone takes together. you got to have some common ground. Maybe it's Western Civ. Maybe we can add other sieves on top of that. But maybe it's important that we all take Western Civ. We all have a general frame of reference. There are two good principles. Diversity plus unity that comes from the college experience. Something to talk about at the dorm. The breakfast table. So you come up with those principles and then you say, can we agree on these? And then work toward reforming the requirements with these two principles in mind. It's always easier if we dig deeper figure out what we value, agree on what we value if we can, and then find some way, some application of those values, some practical solution that fits. I found this out with my boss once back in high school. We were arguing about politics, and he finally stopped and said, can't we agree that the basis for all of our laws is the Bible? (laughs) I thought he was going to say the Constitution. No, the basis for him of all the laws, everything worth following, all the rules, was the Bible. And I said, no, I respect the Bible, but I'm not in favor of using it as the basis for all of our laws. And our arguments got so much easier after that. We knew we had completely different values. We had a different basis for understanding. And then we had to find areas where we did agree. But we were suddenly at a place where we understood each other better because we knew what we valued and, and how they were different. And I respected his, and he respected mine. And we could find other values that we agreed, agreed on instead. And so rather than, quote, but the Bible says this, and try to end the argument that way, he could say something like, don't you agree that we need to treat others as we would wish to be treated. And I was in favor of that. We could build on that. So, back to campus and the politically correct movement. I should tell you that I was also an, an awkward kind of guy, if you haven't guessed that already. found it easy to make friends, but impossible to find a girlfriend. Does everyone feel this way when they're 18? Didn't seem like it at the time. Seemed like it was just me. I remember there was a a woman, a friend of mine, who was complaining about a date that she'd been on, and she said, oh, he was so rude. The cab came, and he didn't even open the door for me. And right after that, I was walking through the lobby of our dorm with another friend, and I held the door open for her. And she rolled her eyes, and she said, Jesus, don't you think I can open that for myself? And hey, (laughs) I'm over it now, don't worry just a couple of stray conversations meaningless and the world has bigger problems than this but i remember at the time listening to this one who wanted her wanted a, a guy to hold the door open or or he'd seem rude very similar woman didn't want me to hold the door at all and i remember at the time thinking i have no idea what to do what do you want from me just tell me Somebody tell me, should I hold the door open or not? I'm not trying to offend anybody here. Although I think this is essentially harmless and nobody was trying to offend me or anything and I shouldn't have taken offense. I remember that feeling, that feeling. Not just, what do you want from me? I'm confused. But the feeling that it leads to. The angrier feeling, the feeling of, I can't please you. I can't please you people. And by you people, in this case, it meant women. You can't make up your mind. You can't decide. You complain no matter what. Those are the feelings. That's where it leads you. That's where this this irritation leads you. Where did this come from? There's no woman, no single woman, no individual who couldn't make up her mind. I was lumping two women together into a category but that's unnecessary and destructive. There was one woman who kind of liked the old chivalrous attitude and one woman who didn't care for it or maybe just didn't care for the way that I did it. It's okay. We deal in this world with individuals. We We are individuals interacting with other individuals. So here's the underlying values that'll get us through these kinds of differences. Respect each other be polite. Don't take offense too easily. Recognize signals in other people. Have a sense of humor. Don't take yourself too seriously. For God's sake, it's just a door. We can live with each other, whether we open doors for each other or not, whether people care if we open doors for each other or not. It's not a referendum on whether men can ever understand women. And civil society does not demand that we get everything right all the time, that we predict in advance how people are going to react. But I wanted to please everyone. And I remember thinking, not just what do you want from me, I'm confused about what you want. But I remember thinking, do I really have to live the rest of my life in this world of uncertainty? Do I have to, do I have to approach every door wondering, if I should hold it open for someone, or if I might cause offense by doing so. And this is a trivial example, but there's bigger ones than this, ones that matter more, ones that were opposed to white men in particular. This country has a legacy of slavery, a legacy of racism, a legacy of Jim Crow, legacy segregation, lynchings, a legacy of male dominance. Forces white men to ask, what does it mean for me? What do I owe people today? Do I make amends somehow? Should I feel guilty? Why? Wasn't me? How much do I feel guilty? What will make things right? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? And then, in the middle of all this, as these ideas are swirling around the air, as they probably do for every 18 year old male I read Nietzsche because I was reading everything and Nietzsche gives a a lesson makes a point says don't feel guilty about this that's the slave in you talking the sheep mentality of a loser the botched and bungled be bigger than that don't let guilt and shame drag you down Nietzsche is a powerful writer and he's affecting. He's very powerful when you're 18 or 19 and trying to figure out who you are and what you should do. And he points at religion too and society and all these structures and he says, are you sure these things are right or are they put in place to keep you from being as great as you can be? And he gives examples, unforgettable examples. Like a beggar who comes forward asking you for money and Nietzsche says, beggars should be banned. Because it's irritating to give them money and irritating not to. That's so true. But why? Nietzsche goes on to say, I'd rather they hit me over the head and took my money than try to guilt me into it. Which minimizes them and minimizes me. That's heady stuff for a 19-year-old. Is it better to be big and bold and great? An artist, a doer, a maker? Who doesn't want to think of themselves that way? And then I went to an objectivist meeting. Do you know the objectivists? It's Ayn Rand's group. Ayn Rand, the author, who wrote those ponderous novels. And this group called themselves objectivists, and they read her novels and promote freedom. And they have a lot of ideas in common with Nietzsche. And there's a kind of soothing element to what Ayn Rand promotes, especially if you happen to be a white male, and you feel like everyone is telling you to feel guilty. Or if you view yourself as a capitalist living in capitalism and you like things, you like nice things and money. And Ayn Rand says it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to be greedy. We need people like that, like you, to really achieve greatness. And it's society that's holding you back. It's the others, the takers, the weak, the poor that are holding you down. And it's so intoxicating to be young and strong and to feel like you have something great within you, something huge in there, a lion waiting to come out of his cage. You could be great. You could do great things. If only the people around you would stop complaining. And if only you could find the strength and the courage to ignore them. They will tell you that you're selfish and greedy. Don't listen. You're not selfish. You're free. You're great and you're free. That's Ayn Rand in a nutshell. And you know who likes Ayn Rand still? Even now in his mid-40s? Paul Ryan. Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Who, as it happens, grew up 10 miles from me. We're about the same age. No people in common. He read Ayn Rand too. And he never got beyond it. And he's, he tells his staff, everyone who works for him has to read Ayn Rand. He could say a lot of things about Paul Ryan, but he does not quit. He has his Ayn Rand beliefs, and nothing will stop that guy. Nothing makes him veer from his course. He's absolutely convinced that social programs like Medicare and Social Security are bad. Because we should not be in the business of helping others. We should be in the business of letting individuals and corporations be as free as possible to achieve their greatness. And the part I mentioned earlier where you have to ignore the criticism of others, you have to ignore those little voices. Maybe they're outside you. Maybe they're inside your head saying, wait, this is just greed and selfishness run amok. This isn't greatness. It's it's, it's really being selfish. Paul Ryan can do it. Paul Ryan can ignore those little voices with great relish. Perform all sorts of logical tricks in order to talk himself out of hearing those little voices. Or maybe he just doesn't care. What are our values? Our underlying values. What do we believe in? as a society, as an American society. Respecting one's elders. Can we agree on that? Caring for people. I kind of feel, for my part, I kind of feel like the world is so hard that anyone who makes it to age 65 should probably get a break. If they are that age, they reach that age, and they can't afford health care, let's figure out a way to give it to them. Let's not throw them out on the street. Let's take care of them you haven't guessed, I like Medicare. I like Social Security. Maybe these people made some bad choices. Maybe they were lazy. Well, that's the argument against it. But you know what? I look around and that's not what I see. I see people who have worked pretty hard all their lives. And I see that the cost of health care is impossibly high. So, did they make bad choices? Maybe that's possible. Did they hit some tough times? That's probably more likely. I'm in favor of Medicare because my value here is to take care of old people. They're kings on earth, as far as I'm concerned. And guess what? While we're on this subject, do you feel guilty at all about the idea of an 80-year-old running out of basic food and medicine with no support? I do. That makes me feel guilty. If I know that they're living nearby, I have feel like I have some responsibility. I feel bad knowing that that's the case. Well, how about letting me be free from that guilt? Where's the freedom for me? I can feel the freedom if we have Medicare and Social Security. I can say we're giving them at least that much care and dignity and self-worth. We're giving them something. To me, that's the kind of freedom we don't talk much about. How about the freedom that children have? They don't have to spend their middle years trying to think about how to pay for their kids' college and how to pay for their parents when their parents have to move back in because they're broken out of money. Other countries have figured out a way to do this and still live very comfortable lives economically. But now we're getting into politics, and that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to stick to something deeper, our values. Here's where I'm getting back to the idea of my wager, the wager that I made with myself back in college. Remember, I was completely confused. I had no idea what to do, what was expected of me, how to act. I read Descartes and Pascal, and then I read Simone de Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex and Man. If I was ever inclined to think that I was inherently smarter than all women, Just because I was a man, that book knocked that idea out of my head. I was not and would never be as smart as Simone de Beauvoir. Neither are you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry to say. Let me pause here for a minute and say that this is a big problem for all of us. It's a tendency we all have to think in terms of categories. I talked about this at the beginning, why I didn't like categories. This is another reason. We talk about race or gender. People spend all kinds of time on this. Are white people smarter than black people? Are black people lazy? This is something the president-elect said not, not too long ago. I think black people are lazy. White people work harder. Are men stronger than women? Are Jews better with money? This is all stuff in the news, people. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not digging deep into the recesses of the past to come up with these things. These are things people are saying right now, politicians, and others. Men stronger than women. Not the way to look at the world. What does it get you? Every rule has an exception. If you're convinced that everyone in a category is X, you'll miss that this person right in front of you is actually Y. That's the shame of it. Viewing the world in that way. You think white men are the strongest people in the world? That true? When you're 85 years old, I've seen women stronger than me. I've seen women stronger than you, white man. I'm amazed by the athletes at the Olympics. They all do things that I can't. And actors and writers, and scientists and professionals of all types, men and women of all nationalities. They all can do things that I can't. They all show courage, where I'd have shown fear. They all have insights where I would be dull. They love where I might be reserved. They've struggled in ways I could not have endured. Why, why on earth should I ignore all this evidence in front of me that says that people are different and equally good and better in some ways and worse than others? Well, it's tempting to ignore all that, isn't it? It's tempting to just live in your little world and think, yes, but, yes, but aren't I a little better? Think, white people, we're pretty awesome. Men kind of run things. Maybe that's the way it should be. Maybe that's for a reason. Maybe when our society has problems, it's because we're departing from that model. Is that a tempting thought? Is that the mindset that makes people cling to their ideas of race. I didn't think we'd be asking these questions. I thought we were beyond it. But here we are. It's the the world we're in now, trying to figure this out, trying to figure out how we, how we were so wrong about where we were, how much progress we had made. But here's what I took from the Simone de Beauvoir book. I don't even remember if this is, in a particular passage, but I remember vividly the lesson I took from it when I closed the book, that the oppressor becomes the oppressed. The oppressor becomes the oppressed. I don't think she actually says those words in in that particular phrase, or at least I couldn't find the quote when I returned to the book just now, looking for it. But that's the idea that I took from it. The oppressor becomes the oppressed. That was my wager, the wager I made, the wager in the tradition of Pascal, the wager that Paul Ryan didn't make. I thought to myself, well, I could go down this path and stick within my group and stick up for my group, try to help my group, advance my group, and maybe try to justify that with articles and arguments and all kinds of Scientific research about why white people are smarter, inherently smarter than other groups, and why men actually should be in charge of things and deserve higher salaries than women, and all these things that would benefit me. I could argue that we we have too many immigrants, too many immigrants having babies, and we need to protect American culture. And I could speak in code words and all that with racism and white power lurking underneath it all. Nobody's fooled. Everybody knows how this works. Been working like this for a long time. But hey, I could distinguish myself from all that. And I could say all the right things and say, that's actually not what I meant. And I'm shocked and offended that you would even suggest such a thing, that I would be racist. And I could tell myself that my role was to be a maker and that other people are takers. And that we should cut out the social safety net because it makes people weak and lazy. And hey, all you people in the inner cities, remember when we talk like that? Inner cities. We know what that means, what we're referring to there. All you people in the inner cities, stop having so many babies and start taking some responsibility for yourselves and get jobs. I could tell myself that I was strong and I would be stronger for holding and espousing all those views and even use my unpopularity as a kind of badge of my courage. I'm willing to tell the truth, even though it's unpopular, even though it's not politically correct. I could follow that path. Paul Ryan did. Paul Ryan's hugely successful and seemingly. Very excited about being Paul Ryan. You know, he's famous. He's powerful. He's very, very happy pushing forward these ideas. These ideas that make billionaires smile in their fat billionaire faces. And Paul Ryan thinks, I'm doing it, Ayn. I'm doing what you wanted. Thank you for letting me be as selfish as I could possibly be without feeling guilty. Thank you for giving me the intellectual framework that would let me position greed and selfishness as freedom and success. He didn't take the wager. My wager was this. What if you're wrong? What if adopting all those views doesn't lead to your greatness? What if your greatness comes from being generous and caring and giving? What if you actually make yourself smaller by being intolerant? by being greedy, by being selfish. You can live your whole life with a black heart. A black heart. What if that's the wrong way to live? That's Pascal. He's not really betting with God. He's saying, how do you act with all this uncertainty? You can choose to act one way, or you can choose to act another. And even if you don't believe, you can act like a pious person and see if maybe you'll start to believe. And in any case, it's a decent way to live your life. And the wager, my wager, which wasn't really about God, but about living in a multicultural society, a world of people of different colors and abilities and levels of wealth and good and bad luck, it seemed clear to me I could be selfish and territorial and tribal my whole life and see where that got me. or I could try to be as empathetic as possible, as caring, as giving, as open to diversity, and to see where that got me. And it seemed clear that if it turned out, that if I lived that way, even if I was wrong, I'd at least have been wrong on the side of trying to be a caring and giving person, unselfish, someone who embraced change and difference in other people, and someone who didn't live in the cramped, dark, defensive little corner of the world, protecting what I had and lashing out at everyone who I thought had something that I didn't. If I chose this path, I might not get rich. I might not enjoy whatever riches I do have without feeling at least some guilt, but at least I'd be open to other people. I'd stretch myself out, all my emotions, including kindness and caring and generosity, and I wouldn't have to be defensive about who I was or how I thought. And I'd meet people. I wouldn't need to pretend that I thought things that I, I secretly didn't think. I thought all this. I thought of both paths. and I thought, it can't be a bad thing. Can it? To try to open myself up to other people. What I didn't realize until... Right now, I was putting the show together. Pascal's wager is about whether the Bible is right about God. And my wager is really about whether the Bible is right about Jesus. Not the Jesus of the resurrection. But the, Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. You can distort Jesus all you want. The teachings of Jesus, a lot of people have distorted them. People do. But there it is. It's right there in the text. Jesus hated wealth and blamed the rich. He saw the rich for what they were. He didn't go through any kind of mental gymnastics to say, well, actually, you know what? Turns out that not helping the poor is better. It's better for them. You can actually help them more by not helping them. They'll get tougher. They'll be less lazy. Don't kid yourselves about that. Throwing someone else's grandmother out on the street is not Jesus' idea for how we should live, and it's not going to make society better or stronger. And don't kid yourself, because that's what it means to privatize Medicare. The big new plan. You know what? The government, for all its flaws, has a mission to look out for everyone. The private sector... Not so much. The private sector, by definition, is different. A company has a mission to look after itself, to look after its own profits. It's required to do so by law. In a privatized system, you and everyone else are on your own. Why is that okay? Why is that okay with my friends, my people? the rural white voters from Wisconsin. said I wouldn't talk about categories. That's one reason to say that I can't talk about that question. But the other problem here is I just don't know if I know anymore. I don't know what's happening. I can try to find out. I'm not sure where this white supremacy, the kinds of things that are apparently okay, at least at the moment. At the time of this recording, the chief strategist of the president-elect of the United States of America is a white supremacist. I'm not sure why there isn't more outrage about this here in America. Maybe there is, and I haven't seen it yet, or maybe it's coming. Here's what I want to think is happening. I want to think that when people say that rural white men and women are ignorant, I can contradict them because I don't believe that's the case. And when I hear people say that they're racist, I want to be able to say that I don't think that's the case either. I want to say that I think that my people, the people I grew up with, feel that they've been overlooked mostly. They feel under siege. Economically, and they're not wrong about that. And I think Democrats have done a terrible job of fighting for them. We have two parties in this country, and they're both in favor of Wall Street and the money they provide. Two parties who both talk about small towns and glorify them, hold them up as patriotic. And meanwhile, We have one party that was truly in favor of banks all the time, and another party that was kind of, sort of, in favor of banks too, and neither party really cared about what was happening in small-town America, about what was happening to the jobs there. They didn't care enough to do anything about it, and it's not enough to say, as one of my students did in class when I was teaching college, that if people are too stupid to know that they should go to college, then they get what they deserve not fair to say that because we've made college a ridiculous choice, an impossible choice. Everyone knows that college helps, that a high school graduation isn't really enough in today's world, but college is impossibly expensive for so many people. And it doesn't pay for a lot of people to go to college because they have to go to work. And if you do go to college, you go into debt and you end up paying back your debt. You never get the return on your investment. You fall into a hole. It's not stupid to turn that opportunity down when that's the choice. So our politicians have put a whole group of people in this category, paying them lip service and screwing them over. Yes, we love family farms, and yes, we love good union, paying jobs, And then we get rid of both those things and we don't do anything to fill the gap. We just leave a big hole. And the people who are in that hole say, who's fighting for me? Who's doing one damn thing about this? And they look at Washington and see nothing. Hollow smiles, empty promises. Some attack ads on television every four years. And then there are voices. Voices step in and fill the gap. Voices that say, look at this. Other people are jumping the line. Immigrants, people of color, they're getting a hand up. They're beloved. Liberals love them. Liberals bend over backwards to love them, even as they're ignoring you. And the message resonates. It resonates because there's no other message that's even going out there. And Paul Ryan with his Ayn Rand belief says it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to say we're cutting off black people and the elderly and the poor and the disabled. You don't need to pay for them. And he doesn't call it selfishness. He gives all the other justifications that they're lazy and that help makes them lazier. And it's your money. The country is broke. There's too much whining going on anyway. And the rural voter, the man, painted into the corner, says, Yeah, I'm working two jobs. Nothing's as good now as it was 30 years ago. Enough is enough. Throw them all out. And we lose sight of our values. We lose our ability to find common ground. A police officer shoots an unarmed man walking away from him. We can all agree that that's a tragedy. That's not a situation we should have. It's a tragedy for the victim, a tragedy for the officer, a whole breakdown in the system. We shouldn't have this in our society, right? Shootings in school, police officers shooting down unarmed men, walking away from them. We don't want that to happen, do we? We want arrests to happen, not killings in the street. We don't want police to have that power, right? But I can hear people chafing at the question because we load the question up with race. And suddenly the response isn't, what a tragedy, how do we stop it? But hey, aren't there videos of black people shooting white people? Why does the media always make it about race? Why do I need to feel bad about this? That's, that's what I see on Facebook. That's the response. We forget there's a human being involved in this. We think about the framing of the media. And the reason why we think about the framing of the media because it's supposed to make us feel bad, guilty. And Donald Trump comes along and says, it's okay to be white. You don't need to feel guilty. Slavery was not your fault. You weren't even born. And now you've lost everything because of a corrupt Washington. And now these liberals want you to feel guilty about the color of your skin. So I see this kind of permanent defensive posture. Not racism, but it's on that path. You can connect those dots. You can see how the economics and the feelings of race get all tangled up. You throw in the fear of Muslims, which 9-11 ignited. And in this kind of vacuum, with this kind of debate, and politicians and commentators stoking the flames, we move from, I don't want to feel guilty about being white, to stop blaming me for everything, to, hey, maybe it's good if those people that other Maybe it's good if those other people get knocked down a peg or two. Things can get even darker. It can get even worse than that. And that pattern I put forward earlier, the idea of I'm just trying to raise my kids not to be racist, that's gone. Why should that be gone? Does anyone have a baby and look at the baby and think, oh, what a beautiful baby. I'm so proud. I hope he grows up to hate people. Does anyone want a beautiful baby? Their pure, sweet creation to take on all that darkness and poison and bile? Does anyone think they want their baby to be a good hater? If that's you, if you're listening to this, and you're thinking, well, I wouldn't mind it. You think that's reality, or that's just being practical, or calling it like it is. Please reconsider. Consider that you might be wrong about this. Not because other people need or deserve your pity, or your sympathy, or anything like that. I get it. You don't care. Nobody wants to feel like they're being blamed unfairly and that they should feel guilty and other people should get free stuff or have an easier time of it. There are arguments that we do it to them as we do owe it to them as a society, but I get it. You've got it hard too, and you don't see it that way. You just see people jumping the line and complaining. Why should they get to jump the line and why should everyone complain about you? If they don't like it, they can leave. I get it. I probably can't talk you out of those views, and I'm not going to bother trying. But think of it this way Do you really want all that poison in your soul? Does it feel good to have it there? Do you want that for your kids? Do you want all that hate in your heart? Do you think it's the best version of yourself? What if it's not? You might be choosing the wrong way to live. You might not make yourself better by putting yourself and your tribe forward while keeping other people down. You might not actually be more free. You might not actually have more success. You might end up on the wrong side of history and on the wrong side of society and you're angry, and you're aggrieved, and you think everyone is blaming you for everything. I'm asking you to ignore all that. Think about your own heart, your own mind, what's in you, because that's all you have. It's not enough to say, well, I love the people near me. I love white people. That's enough love. That's not love at all. That's hate disguised as love. You know it is. You know if God's in heaven, sitting next to Jesus, and you have to bet your soul on whether being a white supremacist is love or hate, which one would you choose? Come on now. Be honest. Your soul depends on it. What side of that bet do you want? You want to claim that it's love or claim that it's hate? And if your guy, the guy you voted for, is dabbling in white supremacy, do you think it's enough to say, ah, well, that's not why I voted for him. I'm not a racist. Do you think you can say, well, I like enough of his policies that I'm willing to live with all the other stuff. Is that enough? Do you think that's enough? I'm not here to lecture you. I'm just asking the question. Is that you at your best? Is that your best self? And so here's the country hanging in the balance. We elected a guy who tapped into a lot of fear and a lot of anger and a lot of hate. But we don't have to let that govern us for the next four years. We don't have to take the lowest road possible. We can turn it around by choosing what we want, what we will stand for, what we will accept, and what crosses a line that we don't want to cross. And the bet, the bet everyone is making about whether they can be the best person they can be is right there. It's love and it's hate. It's right there in front of us. It's a bet we're making within ourselves with no one else watching, no one to judge. It matters to no one but each of us as individuals. What's the best choice to make me a better person? Is it to fill my heart with love or to fill it with hate? Win the bet. You won the election. Now win the bet. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. You can find more episodes at historyofliterature.com and jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. And of course, wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes and your mobile phone apps, you can find us there too. I'll be back next time with some more conventional episodes. Let's Let's hope we can return to books and authors and all these things that we've been enjoying together here on this journey. Let me know what you think. I'm happy to hear your thoughts, too. Comment on the website or on Facebook, facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Or you can send an email to jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. Be good to each other, everyone. Be your best self, full of goodness. i try to do that, and I hope that's a goal for you as well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.